Welcome. I'm thankful all of you guys are here. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Neil Morris. I'm honored to uh, serve on the elder team here at Anthem. And uh, periodically they ask us to come up and uh, share. And so my number was drawn. No, not. Um, as we uh, enter into this every year, uh, we prayerfully kind of consider, does somebody have something to share? And I feel like in preparation for this morning, I do. And so I want to start just with prayer, though, if you guys would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this new year. Thank you for the many, many ways you bless us, Lord. We praise you. You are the only one worthy of our praise. And we come before you now. We ask you send your spirit. Speak through me. Speak through your word. As you say in your word, Lord, you don't let your word return void. We pray that your work would be done, that you would speak, and we'd grow in our knowledge and our walk with you, Lord. In your son's holy name, amen. So, um, it was about a year ago, for those of you guys who were maybe here, it was about a year ago the last time um, I was up here and spoke. And um, apparently, as I was prepping and kind of prayerfully considering this year, God apparently has me on a very extended series. So hopefully you guys remember everything from a year ago. Um, but what God has kind of brought to my heart over the last couple of years, maybe the last three, um, is a desire for unity in the body of Christ. And um, so today's message ties very much into last year's, which was also about church unity. And um, we're going to look at a couple specific uh, parts of that. But um, would somebody mind just turning off the front bank of lights up here just so we can see the screen? Um, thanks, Josh. And then if you wouldn't um, mind putting the first verse up there, um, this is the key one that's been a guiding one um, uh, for me. And... Uh, as we're kind of going into a new year, it's the new year, first of the year, right? And I'm not a person that's really big on New Year's resolutions. Um, I was actually um, thinking, thanks Josh, um, about this, and I saw another pastor post that he doesn't like New Year's resolutions. He um, does a, uh, some other different kind of goal for the year. But it's a time that we kind of reflect, right? We think back on the last year, where are we going from here, going into the new year? And I, I hope that church unity is something we can agree to all uh, focus on in this next year. So this passage, um, and I would encourage you guys to follow along with me today, by the way, a quick side note. Uh, if you have a Bible, either on your phone or in person, um, try to follow along. Um, there's several of the verses I have are going to be up here, but there's going to be some that um, aren't going to be on the screen, um, maybe even have a note on the notes in your... Uh, notes app on your phone and put some of these references down look up on, at look at them later um, I definitely believe that as Christians we're called to be Bereans if you know that passage in scripture we should be checking and seeing okay is this true look up these scriptures and and see if it's true don't just take my word for it okay so this verse John 13 34 through 35 or starting 34 has been a guiding verse for me in the last couple of years um, and it says this, as a Jesus speaking, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what struck me about this verse a couple of years ago is that second portion of that verse um, in uh, 35 there where it says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And it hit me that the way Christians treat each other and the way we act with each other is meant to be a testimony to the world. And this is one of the ways that uh, we don't do a real good job at, right? One of the common criticisms of the church is that we're hypocrites, which of course we are, right? We're all sinners. But the fact that we don't love each other the way that Christ asked us to um, it speaks volumes to the world. Um, and Jesus said that's the way they would, people should know that we're his, right? So just to kind of recap briefly what I covered about a year ago, and then we're going to build on this, um, is that um, I made the point a year ago that uh, church unity doesn't just happen supernaturally. Now, we do need the work of the Holy Spirit to do this. There's no way that we can really truly be unified without him. But it's like a lot of the other spiritual disciplines, uh, like prayer um, and reading the word. We have to do it. We need to actually engage in it, right? And unity is something we have to kind of work at and because uh, it's not easy um, and so uh, you know the other spiritual disciplines like working out our faith the scriptures about working out our faith things like that um, another key thing I talked about last year was that our true citizenship isn't actually here on earth once we're a believer once we're part of kingdom of God our citizenship is in heaven in Philippians 3:20 says but our citizenship in, is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ Another principle that I talked about last year was something that I didn't come up with, I had heard it from someone else, but is a concept of the shadow of the cross. And as believers, we need to make sure we're unified on that part of the, uh, the message, which is the shadow of the cross. And what does the shadow of the cross mean? It means that it's the core pieces of what makes us a Christian. It's the things that we all should agree on. Things like that Jesus is the Son of God that he died for our sins and was resurrected on the third day, that he alone is the way of salvation, right? Those are the things in the shadow of the cross. What happens often in the church is we start getting out of that shadow into areas that aren't that core piece, and we start dividing and start having conflict over things that aren't those core pieces. And you look at church history and you look at the number of denominations we have that would agree on the shadow area of the cross, close to the cross, but you get away from it and all of a sudden you have denominational splits and you have church splits um, throughout the last 2,000 years. And then one analogy I used last year, um, for those of you who are here, um, I had brought up um, Nick and Nathan um, and I had a rope and it was an analogy that when we have a broken relationship between believers, we need to kind of work at that, so I cut the rope, um, and then you have to work at retying that connection with believers. Um, but one of the key things about that analogy was as you take a cut rope and you retie it back together, it actually draws the two ends of the rope closer together. And if you do that with other people in repairing relationships, we'll find that as well, um, that we draw closer to them. So those were the key points of last year's message. So as I prayerfully kind of considered this year, um, what did God have for me, um, I, I felt like, okay, unity is still a piece of it, 
but I felt like God kind of revealed to me that a couple of the key things that tend to lead to disunity in the church are fear and anger. And so as we go into this today, um, anytime you start talking about topics like fear and anger, um, there may be some things that make some of us uncomfortable, and I would encourage you to stick with me uh, through that. Um, I've been uncomfortable myself in preparing this message, and I'll share some about that um, going into it later. But church unity um, is one of the things that Satan is quick to attack. Um, and uh, depending on where we go um, a little later, I may read a little passage from a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Um, how many of you guys have read that book ever? Okay. It's one I like to try to cycle back to every few years, and I appreciate C.S. Lewis's perspective on things. Um, but one of the key things that happens in that book, just a quick framework for you guys, if you haven't read it, is it's two demons communicating. It's one demon communicating to another about um, how to influence um, a person. And, and I reread the book not too long ago, and it kind of struck me again that the person actually gets saved pretty early in the, in the book. Um, and you think, well, that's all they're doing is trying to keep someone from getting saved. Um, but there's kind of a key passage in there where uh, the, worm, the uh, uh, wormwood in the beginning says, no, not everything is lost. His soul might be lost, but if we can make him ineffective, we've also won, right? If we can keep him from spreading the message. And it, so church disunity um, is a key way that happens. So there's lots of other verses in the Bible that talk about unity. Um, we can look at, and I'm just going to list a couple and briefly what they're about. Um, in John 17, 20 to 23, it's referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, he prays to God that his followers would be unified. Philippians 2, 2 through 3, says that we should be in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Psalm 133 talks about it being pleasant when people live in unity. Ephesians 4, 2 through 3, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And we could go on with other scriptures that speak to unity. So we can see that God's purpose, right, is for us to be unified to each other. Um, so like I said, we're going to talk today about some ways that um, our own sins can lead to uh, disunity, um, particularly fear, through fear and anger. So um, I want to kind of kick off this section by looking at Galatians 5, 13 through 26. So if you guys could turn there with me. Galatians 5, 13 to 26. Um, a few of the central verses are going to be up here on the screen um, in a second, but I want to start in verse 13. You guys there with me? So starting in verse 13 of Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. 
for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. If we go back to verse um, 20, or well, 19 and 20, the works of the flesh are evident. We tend to usually seem to focus on some of these sins in this list more than others, right? We see the ones in the beginning, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. Go to the next verse. Idolatry, sorcery, uh, but then enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, being divisive, being causing division in the church is a sin that's listed right with everything else. And we can all find ourselves being uh, guilty of that, um, as have I. So, as we talk about church unity, we have to also understand that there's going to be conflict, right? We're a bunch of people that are different and have different thoughts, and there's going to be conflict. Um, and we see that clear in Scripture as well, if we look at a couple of passages, uh, such as Matthew 18, 21 and 22, um, where Peter comes to Jesus, says that Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, thinking he was being generous, right? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And that's some translations translate that as different. Notice that it doesn't, Peter doesn't come to say, Jesus, do I avoid conflict? Or Jesus, is there not going to be conflict in the church? It's assumed that there's going to be conflict and there's going to be um, uh, sin against each other, right? And Jesus makes clear, no, that's something that you need to forgive. Philippians 2, two or sorry, Philippians 4, 2 through 3. Um, Paul is speaking of a couple of women in the church in Philippi. Um, and he says, I entreat, I'm probably going to say these wrong, forgive me. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sinti to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there's conflict there, right? And we can look for other evidences of conflict um, in Scripture, and those are just a couple. So we know that when we come together, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be um, issues. And so how do we deal with that? So the way we need to start is we need to start by making sure we're aligned with God ourselves individually first, right? And we can actually even look to uh, the Lord's Prayer for that perspective because Jesus asks 
forgiveness from God first, and then for, and then shows us to ask for then for forgiveness for each from each other. So there's a orientation there of first going to God and then to others. We know that there's opposition that comes to sow division as well. Um, if we think back a few weeks ago when Chris was talking about in Nehemiah, uh, there was opposition that came as they were trying to build the wall. Opposition that came um, to sow division among the people, right? If they could divide the people, but they, as it said there, they're of one mind, and so they accomplish things together. But opposition does come. But it's easier to not deal with those things. And we see this often in the world where we tend to form into groups with people that we agree with, people that are like us. It's easier to be around people like that, right? Um, and, but we see that trickle into the church as well. It seeps into the church um, where we tend to group with people we agree with, group with people that we like, group with people that are easy to be around. Um, and I think that's something we need to kind of consciously make sure we're not doing. Um, uh, as it said, as going back to the verse in the beginning, Jesus said it should be a testimony to others that we see unity in the church, right? People should be able to look at the church and see those people look, are very different on some of these ideas, but they're unified and they're, they love each other. Um, and that should be a testimony to something supernatural going on, something else happening there. First Peter three thirteen through seventeen. Now who is here there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who rebel your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You might be asking, why did I put this verse in here? Um, the verse 15 there. Um, but in your hearts consider Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that, for the hope that is in you. Um, growing up in the church, um, I've seen, um, I think this verse misused in the way that, at least in the, the kind of the evangelical space that I was raised in, um, this verse is interpreted to kind of mean, well, we should have a definite answer for every bit of our theology on every single thing, and we should have it down pat in every single way and be able to defend that rigorously. And while there's some nuggets of truth in that, um, I think we use that in a wrong way, um, and it leads to divisiveness between people on issues that are outside of the shadow of the cross. Um, because notice what, uh, what Peter is actually saying here is that, what are people asking for a reason? They're asking for a reason for the hope. Right? They're not asking about every detail of every bit of your theology. They're asking for the reason for your hope, and then also doing it with gentleness and respect. That's the other thing that um, sometimes we, you, we've all probably experienced that someone's saying something to you and say, well, I'm just telling you this because I love you. But how that's delivered matters, right? 
if something's actually delivered in gentleness and respect and in love or not. And those are ways we also lead to disunity, um, even when we think we're speaking the truth, how we speak it matters. Um, I think that's what this scripture talks to, and we should be talking about the key parts of our hope, why we have hope in Christ, why we have hope in the gospel. Another passage I think is useful uh, to look at, again, hopefully you guys have time to go back and kind of look into these more, um, in Romans 14. Romans 14, um, Paul is dealing with um, issues in diversity in the church, specifically over food and custom. And I know um, for a long time I've thought about, okay, you're talking about food, okay, I kind of get it, you shouldn't really divide, divide with other people over food. But I think as I've, um, in recent years, kind of gotten more appreciation for how big of a deal that was at that time um, among Jewish people and other people, what you did with food, that was a really big deal. And so talking about not dividing over differences in you know, whether food is good or bad um, was a key piece that he was trying to deliver uh, to them and I think still applies to us today. Um, so the things that are the big issues to us today um, still apply there, and the things that shouldn't really divide us. I'm going to talk more about some of those things in a minute. So, um, as I was preparing um, uh, this message, um, there were a couple of articles that I just happened to see in this last year, and one of them was an article on the Gospel Coalition site. I don't know if you guys ever uh, followed them. But they released an article just about a year ago um, that titled, Christians Can Be Counterculturally Fearless. Um, and it talks about um, current fears um, in America and how Christians should respond to that and being counterculturally fearless. Um, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, also, there was another article in this last year um, in Christianity Today titled, There Is No Such Thing as a Safe Space. And it talks about in conflict, we kind of want to read retreat to our own safe space and where things are okay, but as Christians, we're not called to be in that safe space. We should move towards people that we're in conflict with. Um, we should move into situations that are those hard situations to bring reconciliation, uh, and that's what that um, talks about as well. Okay, so as I said at the beginning, um, the two main uh, things that I felt like God revealed to me that feed to division in uh, the church, I think, is fear and anger. Um, we're going to talk about fear um, right now. And as you guys probably know, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that regard fear and anxiety. Um, if you struggle with fear and anxiety, um, as I uh, sometimes do, I would suggest that you just go to a concordance or go online to, um, there are many sites that help you just look up scriptures on fear, and you'll find many of them that speak to fear um, and anxiety, right, and how we're supposed to approach it. Um, uh, one of which, I just have a couple here um, that I appreciate. In Philippians 4, 5 through 7, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Matthew 6:34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If there are times when you're feeling fearful, have anxiety, I'd encourage you guys to spend time in the Word looking up verses like these. Spend time with them, meditate on them. We often need uh, courage that the Holy Spirit provides uh, to move um, towards conflict and act- actively seek reconciliation. So dealing with our own fears and anxiety is a key piece in that, to be able to do that. Um, fear is simply a fact of life, right? There wouldn't be so many verses about it if it wasn't such a key piece of life. Um, we see it throughout our culture, right? And there are so much, many things um, that uh, revolve around fear. Uh, and God, when there's all these verses that say cast our fear on God, doesn't mean that we just all of a sudden wind up being non-fearful people, although the more we trust in him, I think we deal better with the fear. But fear is present, right? That's all around us. Um, and I think often it, it gets concealed from us, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, so the main uh, idea of the message isn't necessarily about fear per se, but how fears can divide us, right? How our fears can divide us. It might be a fear for yourself, um, but I think often what I see is that it's our attitudes or our judgment of other people's fears that become a point of division. Um, And uh, we'll talk about some examples in a second. Um, For those of you who are here, and I mentioned it last year, I've I tend to use object lessons um, in my messages. Um, It comes from a a pastor that was um, really instrumental in the early part of our married life. He always had an object lesson of some sort at some point in his message. So I have an object lesson for today. Um, I will say at the beginning, analogies like this, they don't always work in every situation, so there's limitations to it. But I hope it can give us a framework for a further discussion. Um, And, uh, uh, but I think analogies and things like that are useful, right? So, I do a little bit of rock climbing. Um, I haven't very much in the last couple of years, but I was trying to think, okay, what's something that is something that a fear that a lot of people can kind of relate to? Fear of heights, right, is one. I have a fear of heights, and yet I have done some rock climbing. So what is that, how does that work, okay? So I want you to walk with me here for just a, a minute with an analogy. If we look at one of these walls in here, I've looked at this several times in this room, and this is something if any of you guys climb as well, you might have noticed this. These walls, these little strips of wood on the wall, it would be possible to climb that wall using those strips. Agree? Any other climbers in here? Okay. Would it be easy? No. But could it be done? Probably. Okay. But there's some ways, that, some things that might help in doing that, right? So I brought a couple of things, and before you think too much, um, because I have some climbing gear, it doesn't really mean I'm that good of a climber, I'm really more of a poser when it comes to climbing. But we talk about some gear here, right? Okay, so say you're gonna try to climb that wall, we take out a helmet, okay? Feel a little bit safer with the helmet? Maybe, maybe a little bit, okay? What else do we have? Um, how about climbing shoes? For those of you that climb, what do the shoes help you do? 
kind of stick to the wall better. They give you a really fine point at the, at the point of the shoe where you can hook on it. So the edge of that wood piece, you'd be able to hook your toe on there better. And it's kind of a sticky rubber, right? Would this help you feel a little more confident? Yeah, a little safer, right? How about some chalk? Chalk bag? Okay, what's the chalk do? Helps keep your hands from getting sweaty a little bit. Helps with some abrasiveness. Helps your fingers to stick a little bit better and climb, okay? But many of us probably still wouldn't feel very safe trying to climb the wall, right? But what if I was to offer a harness that goes around your waist and a rope, which I'm not gonna dig out of here, but and we, if we set up over one of those rafters up there, Okay, some quick draws and some hook a rope up over there, and then I belay you so that you can try to climb that wall. Feel a little safer? Yeah? Okay. Would you be 100% safe if we did all that? No. Not 100% safe, right? And that's the thing about many things in life. It would be easier to not climb, right? The safest way to climb is to not climb. Climbing at all is inherently somewhat dangerous, right? But we all live with some aspect of this fear in our everyday life. We all got in a car to come here, but you start looking at statistics on car wrecks and your odds of dying in a car wreck, you're taking some risk, right, in getting into a car. Okay, you guys with me so far as far as an analogy? Okay. So let's refer back to that, some things that I've seen that maybe have divided people in the last couple of years. How about the response to COVID? To some people, not wearing a mask was like climbing without a rope. Maybe to other people, because that was a fear, right? Maybe to other people, getting a vaccine is fearful, right? So, but to someone else, that's using a rope. You guys see where I'm going with this? Okay, the whole point of the analogy and where I want to kind of take that is that for us when we're looking, because I think where we start to divide often in fears is we look at someone else's fear and we think, well, that's silly. They shouldn't be fearful of that. Where are they fearful of that? I want you to back up a little bit and think about it. Okay, if I was going to think about climbing, different people have different levels of comfort in climbing. Um, to use one other aspect of that, how many of you guys saw the documentary Free Solo? Okay, so a gentleman by the name of Alex Honnold climbed El Capitan in Yosemite National Park without a rope or harness. He did have shoes and chalk, and if you watch the documentary, he did a lot of preparation for that, right? And he called it off more than once before he did it. So it wasn't just willy-nilly that he went up there to do it. But he did it without that. Where I think we, we trip up with fears with each other is, let's use that analogy, well, let's say, he didn't use a rope, he can't be a Christian. Okay, we start thinking these things in our heart and think they're fearful of that or they're not fearful of that and we use it as a, a basis for thinking a judgment on someone else on where they're at on their fears. And so hopefully on things, again, these are things outside of the shadow of the cross, the things that we face, the things that are in real life when we face fears, and we have those different situations. Hopefully, um, uh, we can think about 
that from a different perspective? What are some other things that people are sometimes fearful of? How about government overreach? Are there different levels of fear about that? For sure. How we educate our kids. Do we homeschool? Do we sign them to public school? A common fear in our culture um, I've thought about in the last few months is the fear of aging. Think about how many products and things in our culture are about trying to keep us from aging, which means it's really a fear of aging that we're after. But if you look at Scripture, there should be a respect and an honor that comes with age. And I would encourage us to think about uh, a redeeming of aging, right, and a respect for uh, aging and for that process. But our culture is built against it. There's all kinds of aspects in our culture where things feed on our fears. One of the things that I've seen often um, in uh, evangelical circles as well um, that's used to bring fear is things around end times. And end times, eschatology, whatever your view is, uh, is uh, often used to bring fear in people um, because then they have a product to sell. It's like, oh, your supply of food or whatever it happens to be. Um, but in general, um, I think if you think about it, most of the time things are are marketed in that way. There's a whole book series, Left Behind. I don't know if you guys, how many of you guys grew up reading that. It kind of stokes fear, honestly. And um, I don't know about you, but we shouldn't be worried about that. If it's the end times and Christ is coming, we should be excited. We should be looking forward to that day, right? If you look at the scriptures on what Christ says about that. Um, as I was getting ready for this message, and I'm glad he's here, John Johnson is here this morning. Um, John, I don't know if you remember, there was a, uh, something you said to me a long time ago. Um, I was probably freshly out of high school um, when you said this because um, it, it was a big topic at the time. Well, you pre-trib or post-trib, right? And you had to figure it out. You had to know your theology and you had to figure it out. And I remember something John said to me at that time. He said he was pan-trib, meaning it'll all pan out in the end. And it stuck with me, and I don't know if you remember ever saying that to me. It stuck with me because it opened my mind to see, whoa, not every Christian maybe agrees on the same thing, and maybe I don't have to agree or pick a stance on that and hold to it. Remember back to that, give a reason for the hope scripture we talked about before, okay? Maybe some of that we can hold loosely, and we can say, yeah, you should have an opinion about it. You should be aware of it right? We should be ready for when Christ comes back. But if you're getting fearful about it, something is amiss in how you're preparing for that. Everybody with me? Ready to talk about anger? Anger, uh, we'll look at a couple of scriptures here, but what I think God has kind of shown me in the last year as well is I think anger often is rooted in our fear, okay? And we'll talk more about that um, here. Um, often also we get angry because of defense of our own pride or our own beliefs. One of the things we tend to do, um, as I, and I've heard this often as Christians, is we tend to quickly appeal to righteous anger because we know that righteous anger exists, right? Obviously when God's angry, it's righteous. Um, but I think we find, if we start looking at Scripture, um, 
righteous anger among humans is rare, and it always comes with a warning. As in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, it says, be angry and do not sin. Notice it says be angry, but then follow it up with and do not sin, meaning there's a, there's a warning there. It's really easy to sin on our anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So notice anger is dangerous. Anger is kind of like a fire. It can be okay at one point, but it can get away from you really easily, and the devil will use it. Psalms 4.4 is where that comes from um, in Ephesians. It says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. James 1.19 and 20 says we're to be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when we get angry, and by the way, we also tend to use euthanisms for anger, say we're irritated or we're frustrated or we're annoyed, right? Because we all kind of know, okay, we're not really supposed to use the word anger, right? But really, the root of all those things is anger. We need to back up and think a little bit about, okay, why are we angry? Um, Also, another um, aspect of thought often in this last year is we need to remember that people that we're angry at, Jesus loved them enough to die for them too. And we need to remember that as well, that when we're angry with someone, um, Jesus died for them as much as for you. So how does this apply today in our current context? I'd say that if we look around at our culture, it's saturated with fear and anger. Violence is commonplace. We also have this uh, tribalism uh, and things that, where we get divided into these groups where we have to agree with everybody we're with. We build false dichotomies where we say you gotta be either this or you gotta be that without any room for the in-between. Many, many topics and examples of that. When we talk about it's us versus them, that kind of mentality is rooted in fear and anger. A book that's been, um, you're probably wondering why I have a couple of books up here. Um, one of the books that's been meaningful to me in the last couple of years, and I would encourage you if you're interested in reading it, um, is this book by Ed Stetzer called Christians in the Age of Outrage, How to Bring Our Best When the World is at Its Worst. And it uh, has a lot of really good information in here. This was written back in 2018, even before things have gotten even more divided, I would say, in the last few years. Um, some of the key things that he talks about in this book are these issues of tribalism and polarization. Um, and how that seeps into among Christians as well. Um, how in our culture we tend to talk past each other. Um, and not, you know, when you're talking to somebody, you start already thinking about how you're going to respond rather than really hearing that person. Plus, online and in um, social media, we tend to build what are called echo chambers. You've probably heard that concept, where all of a sudden all, everything you're seeing and you're reading agrees with you. And so, in this, and that's the way the algorithms, if you watch um, The Social Dilemma, you'll, uh, if you guys watch that, algorithms are built that way on social media. And all of a sudden, you're in an echo chamber. You think, everybody's got to agree with me, right? Um, and it's not the truth. 
And the other one that, I, one of the key things that I think is, is key in this book that he brings up is, is that we need to see other people as people and not avatars. And I know that ties into a new movie release again, but the term avatar uh, means it's a representation of somebody, right? It's not their true self. Um, and that's what, that, what an avatar refers to. But we do this often with other people. We build an avatar um, for a person. And pretty quickly, we, we kind of make a whole bunch of assumptions about that person based on what we think their avatar is. Whether that be someone who's liberal, someone who's conservative. And all of a sudden, you start building this framework for this. Um, you, we build this on all kinds of things. Um, don't be offended at me saying this, but sometimes you see guys who drive Dodge trucks, okay? We can build avatars, and all of a sudden, you say something like that, and you kind of build a picture in your mind, right, of what that might mean. And we do that often, and we don't actually see people. Um, and so, I encourage you to think about that. It's like, okay, if you're uh, thinking about, uh, you know, something you disagree with, and then all of a sudden you think that someone that disagrees with you on this, they must also disagree with you on this and this and this, and this person is this just awful person. Um, that is an evil person and just want nothing to do with them. You're not seeing them as a person um, who is worthy of the gospel and of love um, and of um, relationship with them. All right? You okay if I read just a short passage? Of screw tape letters. They say that maybe you're not supposed to do this. Chris probably is like, oh no, he's going to read a section of a book. It's a short section. It's a paragraph of letter seven. So just quick context. Like I said, this is one demon commun communicating with another demon about someone who's a Christian. He's a believer, but how are they going to influence him? Okay. So keep in mind when it talks about the enemy in here, he's talking about God and Jesus. Okay. Because it's from that perspective. I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient, that's the person that they're influencing, an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. Quick framework, this was written around the time of World War II in England. Okay. Not always, of course, but at this period. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then it's our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, and I would say the one we're in now is also, are unbalanced and prone to faction, and it's our business to inflame them. Any small coterie bound together by some interest in which other men dislike or ignore tends to develop inside itself a hothouse, mutual admiration, and towards the outer world, a great deal of pride and hatred which is entertained without shame because the cause is its sponsor and is thought to be impersonal. Even when the little group exists originally for the enemy's own purposes, this remains true. We want the church to be small, not only so that fewer men will be, may know the enemy, but also that those who may acquire the, the uneasy intensity and the defensive self-righteousness of a secret society or a clique. The church itself herself, of course, is heavily defended, and we have never yet quite succeeded in giving her all the characteristics of affection. But subordinate factions within her, smaller churches, gatherings like this one, 
have often produced admirable results from the parties of Paul and of Apollos at Corinth down to the high and low parties in the Church of England. It's interesting as I was reading that to think about the corollaries and how similar things are now and how divisive things are, how uh, it's easily, uh, easy to go down that road and to be divided from others. And one of the other key things that I've thought about is, is that we are all discipled by something, right? And we're all driven by what disciples us. Should be discipled by the Scripture and in prayer and by the Holy Spirit, right? But we let media, entertainment, things like that to disciple us. We can't expect an hour a week um, in a setting like this to overcome multiple hours in the week of discipling by some other source. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a physical therapist, and I talk about this often. This relates to my practice as well. When I treat someone, I often give them things to do, what I sometimes call homework, exercises, stretches, things they need to do to change things. Them seeing me once, twice, even three times a week is not going to be enough to change whatever's been going on in their body. They need to make some changes on their own in their own time and doing exercises, right? Our spiritual walk is the same. You can't take what happens here in this hour and expect it to change your perspective. You've got to spend the time in the Word, with the Spirit, in prayer, and limit your exposure to some of those other things that tend to disciple you. If you notice in um, media in general, there's usually an outrage of the week. Depending on whichever media source you're looking at, there's some new outrage every week. That's what talking about this book, The Churches in the Age of Outrage. It's the age of outrage, something to be upset about every week. And it's usually different. But if you come away from your media source more fearful or more angry, it's probably not a good influence on you. Doesn't mean you can't be informed. But you need to watch, how do you respond to it? What's happening from it? How is it making you view other people? Is it making them into avatars? Or is it making them into people that are loved by Christ as well, that need the gospel? I shared earlier that some of this was um, challenging for myself as well. Um, some of this process and making this message is like, okay, you know, how does that relate to me? Um, so let me get kind of real with you guys on uh, some things for myself, some of my own insecurities and fears. I've always been uh, pretty introverted um, and not very confident in a lot of things. I'm not good at a lot of things like athletics. Any of you guys spend any time with sports-related things with me will find that I'm definitely not good at athletics. Um, not, uh, I could list many things. Way, the way I've kind of built defense mechanisms for myself in that, that I've recognized, um, is, is that I try to stay to the back in things, right? I try to um, keep quiet because I don't want to say something dumb because I'm afraid of looking dumb, right? Or sounding dumb. I responded with perfectionism growing up. I was thinking, okay, I can, I can do this um, perfectly, and then there's no way for someone to criticize me in that. It's a fear, it's an insecurity, it's a fear. I've linked often in my um, own life um, to having pride in my intelligence. I figured out, okay, I could do well 
in school. I could score high on exams. Um, it's, uh, I, I went through a lot of schooling. But what that built up in me and what it, it can allow to build in me is pride in that intelligence. And I've used that pride, or in my, used my intelligence, um, in a way to hurt other people before, um, to put people down, to put myself above them. I've uh, sometimes in, in small groups in church, um, I've, uh, you guys probably have heard the term devil's advocate. It actually has an old Catholic root to it, but playing the devil's advocate. In, I've been smugly sitting in one spot and, and asking questions that, um, to play the devil's advocate about something about Scripture, but in doing so probably have challenged some people's faith in a way that I shouldn't have. And I've done things like that, and I confess that um, to you guys. I've confessed it to others. A few years ago, um, I was working in a job um, where um, some of the ways that I handled some things were called into question, and I responded with anger. As I looked back on it, I realized it wasn't righteous anger. Uh, that anger um, was actually fear of my own insecurities, my own insecurities that I wasn't perfect, that I wasn't the smartest, that I wasn't the best in that situation. And I think we can probably all agree that that's often where our fear comes from, right? Our fear is often um, rooted in our pride or in our selfishness, and our anger comes out of that as well. If you find yourself being angry, um, do a self-assessment of that. You know, what is the reason for this anger? Is it really righteous anger or not? Or perhaps you're angry because one of your idols is being threatened. We think we don't have idols like they do in the Old Testament, but as I've learned and studied Scripture more and more, there's a couple of things I've learned we all tend to do. Just like in the Old Testament, the, we, we see the, the Jewish people in the desert continuing to go back to idols, right? We think, well, we don't have idols, but the more I see in life, we do. They don't always look like a little gold statue. Um, but if something has taken our eyes off of Christ, it's an idol, right? And often our fear and our anger comes when our idols are threatened. The solution, going back to some of those scriptures we looked at before, patience, being slow to speak slow to become angry, being humble. And of course, over all of it is love. Um, and that's the, the hope of all of it, is the hope of the gospel, right? The, the hope of love and the hope of the gospel. Uh, worship team can come back up at this time. So what are some practical applications we can take from this? Um, you're going to find, those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago when Trevor spoke about peace, um, I actually maybe kind of stole a little bit from, from him in that. Sorry, Trevor. Um, uh, he had four points. I have five, so I guess there's one more that I came up on my, on my own. Um, but 
I wanted, what are some ways that we can kind of address this, right? What are some things we can do to try to address our own fear and anger um, and be in unity? First, we have to start with spending time with God and the Holy Spirit, time in the Word. You've got to begin there. You can't get by relying on not doing that regularly. And this is something I'm speaking to myself. I need to do a better job of this myself. You've got to start there. Number two, we've got to limit our discipleship by other sources, namely media or other people who, fear, who feed into our fear and anger, right? So assess, is that, is, that relate, is that situation I'm in, is that feeding into my fear or is it challenging me to look more to God? Number three, when we feel fearful, it says to cast our fears on Jesus, right? Look at those scriptures that we looked at before, look up more. Also, we need to recognize that each of us has our own fears and don't let that build a wall between us. Think back maybe to the climbing analogy. Think, well, maybe for that person, that's climbing with a rope. Maybe that's something different. Also, name your fears in prayer and community. Number four, when we get angry, first stop and pray. Think back to uh, the message with, uh, that Chris shared about Nehemiah a, a while back. And actually, I'm going to just quickly side note on that, where he got angry um, at the people um, who were taking advantage of the poor. Um, and that's an example, I believe, of righteous anger, um, but also how he handled it. So first of all, most of the time when you look through Scripture, if you think of righteous anger, it probably has something to do with taking advantage of the poor or the downtrodden. Um, those are usually things that are considered righteous anger. But what did Nehemiah do first is he didn't go confront them immediately. He prayed. He took some time to pray. And then he prayerfully went into that meeting. Um, look back at that message if, you're, uh, uh, if you want on that as well. Um, consider whether your anger is connected to fear. Maybe one rule you might consider, if you find yourself trying to justify your fear or your anger, it's probably not righteous anger. If you're having to search for some way to justify it, it's probably not righteous. Um, ask for forgiveness in prayer and community. And number five, let's get work on getting to know each other, uh, get to know other people with different viewpoints other than our own. Let's stretch ourselves a little bit. Let's let ourselves rest in the unity and diversity of the church. Rooted in the shadow of the cross, those core things that we know we're unified on, but appreciate the beauty of how the Holy Spirit unites people with very many differences, okay? Um, I think about uh, Revelation 7, 9, the picture of before the cross, you guys, or I'm sorry, before the throne in heaven, um, where it says that there's people of every tribe and every nation, every tongue worshiping together. And I believe that we can seek that to a small degree on earth when people can be unified to each other. Lastly, I just want to speak um, to any of you who maybe haven't yet made a decision to follow Christ. Maybe part of the reason you've been skeptical of the gospel um, is because of the division that you see in the church. You see this divisiveness and the anger and the way Christians devour each other. And you've noticed the hypocrisy in that, rightly so. 
But maybe this view that I've shown today, that that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not God's heart for it. Um, maybe that is a different attractiveness to the gospel to you. And I want you to think about that and pray about that. Um, maybe that's the kind of church you want to be a part of. And, um, and it, now is an opportunity that you can pray and ask God uh, into your heart, even today, um, in that kind of um, perspective, right, and the unity of the church. And can I ask you just to put the last, or the first verse back up on the screen again? So in John, back to the beginning here. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I hope that's a view that we go into this year, a new perspective on loving each other, not being divided over things like fear and anger, but instead united with each other um, in love. you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. We do confess the times that we have been fearful and angry, unjustly so, in the times that we have uh, been divisive um, with fellow believers. We ask for forgiveness, Lord. We ask that you would help us to do better, help us to walk in your love and in your unity, and that that light would be a sign to others that uh, what is going on here is different. It's not of this world. It's not like everything else they see. We pray you bring that unity. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. If those of you would like prayer, um, there's going to be people up here at the sides um, with red prayer badge on. If you'd like to pray uh, with anyone as we worship now. Yeah.